0: Acts 15, we'll continue on, and we're going to start with verse 36, Acts 15, 36, and uh, let me go to the first slide. First we'll pray. Thank you, dear Lord, for the fellowship of the saints and for your kindness and goodness. Thank you, Lord, that you care about us, that you provide for us. That you protect us, and Lord, we do pray for our, our nation, which is just in horrible condition right now, and our hearts are grieved about it. We pray for civil leaders that they would take responsibility to restrain lawlessness, and we pray that the gospel would keep going out strongly, so that people would hear the truth and understand the truth and see that the alternative to lawlessness is a relationship with your son, Jesus Christ, who, uh, Lord, came for us. Thank you, Lord. We give you the glory and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Greetings, dear saints. Greetings, greetings. (laughs) See, yeah, this is how it was when I got here and even had my pulpit back down. I guess that was somewhere else. We're going to have church. Um, Acts 15. Now I've been doing this on the Zoom sermons and it's my turn, but now we're back at Sunday school. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of God and see how they are. Now if you remember... If you heard the Zoom sermons on Acts, the decision was made in Jerusalem to not require Gentile believers to practice circumcision and obey the law of Moses. And I explained that. And the one caveat was they were not to eat blood or things strangled. And then they the other thing would be binding under God's moral law, no matter what, which was fornication and any kind of temple things associated with temple paganism. So that was all decided. What, what the, some of the sect of the Pharisees had wanted was that not only to be circumcised, but actually obey the entire law of Moses, and that was said no. That's not that's not binding. And we have done a lot of teaching to help you understand that in Luke Acts and going back to the Mount Transfiguration where God says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And listen to him was an allusion to Deuteronomy 18.15 where Moses predicted that God would raise up a prophet like him and that when Moses did that, listen to him. So the voice from heaven, God the Father, with Moses and Elijah present, representing the law and prophets, said, this is the one, listen to him. So Jesus becomes the lawgiver under the new covenant. And his apostles spoke for him. And so this decision by the apostles and elders is the law of God. It's I Although we did have the caveat that the blood was probably an accommodation to make it even possible. It would have been going too far. Most people don't eat blood anyhow, but there's a few people that do. I've heard of people that like blood sausage. Frankly, I don't get it. <laughs> but anyhow... Any, you know, if you say something, I can hear you, and I'll repeat whatever you, you question or say.
1: I guess I would have, just would this be and four things that the church was not to do? So they were to abstain from blood. Is that a good argument against the Catholic Church and drinking? You know, this is the blood of Jesus.
0: Uh I don't know if you could do that for sure. Good question. The question was, would that be an argument against the Catholic Church claiming that their sacrament was the real blood of Jesus? Uh, There's so many arguments against that anyhow. But um, most of the scholars think that because Jesus declared all foods clean and it also covered things strangled, that it was an accommodation to make it possible for there to be fellowship because it would have just been a bridge too far for the Jews I, you know, you, I, I'm open to discussion on this because I did a lot of research because I've been asked over the last 40 years I have never known anybody to eat blood sausage but somebody asked me about it that wanted to and I was a little well, I mean honestly I just said why would you want to but evidently, from their culture, that's something they did, or where they were from. Um, yes. It's blood sausage. It's something that certain people eat, and I don't know what is it from Eastern Europe or somewhere where they have that in their culture. Because Scandinavians eat it too. Yeah.
1: Scandinavians. It wasn't our family, but um, I just think
0: that, you know, those people
1: back in the day those people, but,
0: you know, they used everything. Nothing went away. That's true. It's Scandinavians eat lutefisk, too, <laughs> Yeah, so you can't see <laughs> For those on the tapes, he said, Scandinavians eat lutefisk. <laughs> yeah, I haven't yet met one that actually liked it, have you? <laughs> Anyhow, um, that's a good point. I, I used to, in, our, in the 80s we had a family at the church I was a pastor of from Latvia. They were were two refugees and they'd been in, escaped a concentration camp. And they loved fish so I caught, I brought them all kinds of fish. They were elderly couple. And one time um, Lydia said, where's the rest of the fish? I brought them these nice walleye fillets and well, I want more. Where is it? what you do with the rest of it? So I cleaned it. Well, I want the whole fish. So I went out on the Red Wing on the river and caught this big old walleye because it was open back then in February on the river in Mississippi. Brought her the whole thing. She said, Great. It had egg, cheese, everything eyes and eggs. and. I said, Okay, here it is. I don't want to see it. Do what you want. <laughs> I like the meat, Guess <laughs> <Gets> we're spoiled. <laughs> yeah, they'll use everything. So the conclusion I came to in the sermon I did on it was that part was probably a commendation because Jesus declared all food clean. And I also pointed out that modern butchering, butchering processes do bleed animals. So if you buy a steak or pork chop or anything in the store it's, a bit, it's been bled whether that applies to the mass I can't say for sure uh, but the mass is so pagan anyhow it's, it's just it's absurd the thing that really destroys the Roman Catholic Church is all of the statements in the Bible that say once for all Hapax in the Greek once for all the blood of Jesus was shed once for all that's the end of Rome right there, once for all. Now, um, I yes. The
1: Roman Catholics have no uh, qualms about idolatry either.
0: Oh no, you know, so, they're so,
1: drinking
0: blood. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. They do. Good point, Beth. They have. Somebody said they have no qualms about idolatry. If you see some of the. Uh, so-called cathedrals they're just a temple of paganism and uh, idols of every sort whatsoever and I've seen that I saw some of that when I was in Israel and um, if you see pictures of Vatican there's idolatry everywhere so um, they would already fail on that point of the pagan idolatry much less the blood issue. And what that is is a failure of faith. Faith believes that Jesus Christ did it all once for all. That Jesus Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God. And therefore, we don't need, if we can't, well, we can't expect people to believe they've got to see it, so we've got to have a statue. We've got to have a crucifix. We've got to have, well, they like female deities. They're used to that, so we'll have Mary. We'll accommodate every kind of paganism under the sun. So that's a good reading. It's a good point. They, yeah, that was Beth. They, um, they just take the pagan, temple paganism, bring it right in and turn it into Christian which is forbidden by the Jerusalem Council and by just the teaching of the apostles. Now, I mentioned Acts fifteen fourteen. Let us visit. The word visit is episcopal. A, a a a, a and it, it, uh, it's where we get our word episcopal or um, overseer. And um, it means to expect or examine. Now, in the, the Bible... When it's God visiting, and you see this idea in the Old Testament, it means that He's checking out what's going on. It's not that God isn't omniscient. Okay, these are anthropomorphic statements. But the idea is that there would be a jelly vis- an visitation or a pre incarnate visitation of Christ. And whenever God visits, two things happen some are saved. And some are judged. I wrote an article about that uh, for CIC. Uh, Dining with the Kings, I think is the article. The Lord's Supper is a visible visitation in a sense that we're remembering the Lord's death till he comes. Uh, Just another question. On the 1514? Yes. which, Which word specifically is... If you look at... The new KJV, they do have um, the word visit there. Well, how does yours read?
1: Mike says, Simeon has reported how God first
0: intervened. He intervened or concerned himself. Concerned himself is what that is. Yeah. I Yeah. I'm quoting the new KJV that had it, Acts fifteen fourteen. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the gentiles to take out of them for uh, people for his name and it's this word episcop tomai, and it's about God's visitation so the, this is always this is consistent i, I trace this through the whole bible for that CIC article on visitation and when it happens everywhere Lot was a visitation. Well, what happened? Lot of his family were saved. People were judged. Noah visitation. Then you go all the way through the Bible, and I was mentioning First Corinthians eleven. And when communion is talked about, First Corinthians eleven, it talks about some people being judged because they did not discern the body rightly. Okay, because they were having their feast the rich people were having their feast in a nice home the poor people sat outside and had nothing and it was dividing the church and Paul declared that some had been judged because of that First Corinthians 11 I talk about that in my article so the Lord's Supper in a sense is a visitation we're remembering the Lord's the um, Lord's death until he comes and the second coming will be the ultimate visitation. Okay, the Perusia. some will be snatched out and saved, like Lot was taken out and Noah, and the others judged. Now there's a process to that, but that's what's going to happen. So that's what a visitation is. And the same thing happened in Acts. It says that God visited the Gentiles to take out of the a people for his name, New KJV, Acts 15, 14. Uh, I love this. I love being in church teaching the saints face-to-face. Yeah. Hallelujah. Yeah. <laughs> um, the visitation, if you just read Acts, look at what happened, the things that happened. God was on a scene in the person of the apostles and the preachers, and some people would respond with joy and be saved and others would start a riot there were people that were actually struck dead that, that wouldn't give God the glory there was Simon the sorcerer remember him? Peter says you and your money can perish together and he he's judged he's sent away and so you see Salvation and judgment when there's a visitation of God. The same thing happened with Jerusalem, which is the focus of Luke-Acts, this whole trip up to Jerusalem. And Jesus pronounced judgment on Jerusalem because she did not recognize the day of her visitation. And that was carried out more fully in 70 AD, but it doesn't mean it's forever. There will be a future time when God will restore Israel, and bring salvation to the root. Does that make sense? Now, let me just mention this word episcopal uh, in, in the sense of church government because it does come up. Episco, <laughs> Episcop, uh, is where we get a word episcopal, but uh, in Acts twenty if you use the noun forms and verb forms of the different words, the words for shepherd and overseer and elders are used interchangeably for the same people. Okay? So the shepherds, the, there's the shepherd of flock, the elders were called together, and it's said shepherd of flock of which the Holy Spirit made you overseers. Which is this episcopal Tome. So in the New Testament, the shepherds, the elders, the the overseers, they're all the same people. So there are no bishops. There aren't any. There's no bishops, there's no archbishops, there's no pope, there's no cardinals. All of that's not there. It's a later invention in church history. Does that make sense? There were no people with pointed hats. No pointy hats. <laughs> like and no cathedrals. Yeah. And, okay. Uh, you know, the focus, let, let me just mention this in that context. The focus in the t- church should be on the Word of God. I learned that all the way back in Bible college. And I was in a Pentecostal Bible college at the time because they were the ones that led me to the Lord. But one of my teachers said, you'll notice that in our churches, they were mentioned there, but most Baptists and uh, conservative churches would be the same. The pulpit is in the center in the sanctuary. The the pulpit's in the center. And I didn't know this because I grew up in a liberal Methodist church where the Bible would be on one side and somebody would read out of it for like a minute and that was the end of that. Then there's the sacraments and on the other side is where the sermon out of the U.S. News and World Report came or whatever they were talking about. It wasn't the Bible. And so when I came to Christ, they said, no, the Bible's in the center and that's making a statement that we are gospel-centric. The Word of God is the center of our message, not sacraments and church ornaments and all the stuff that you see. Now, sometimes I think church architecture, you don't have to have a church building to be a church, by the way. You can gather anywhere. But I've seen some lately, because I've seen some of these funerals they've had for different people. And there's a big mistake that they make. And that is they create a situation that draws everybody's attention away from the word of God. You know they have the pulpit in the middle. I was at a church I mentioned this out in California when I went out to a think tank and it was a Presbyterian which is a word you know gospel centered church. The pastor was good. But they had this thing where the whole front of the church was one great big huge window looking out over Southern California palm trees. And in the middle where the preacher was, it was a little kind of a black space because it wasn't as bright as the windows the the pulpit. And I had a hard time. I was trying to concentrate. And it, unless you said front and center, your eyes are drawn to those palm trees. I saw another one. I went to a funeral where it was a Lutheran church. And they had a pulpit in the middle but they had these great big stained glass windows that went up to a pointy spire pointing up, and your eyes are going up here, and you're not paying attention to what they're preaching. I'm saying, hopefully somebody listens to this and has a decision if they're building a building. Make it so that the word of God can be heard and that the center of the focus is the teaching of the word. Not some architecture's idea of Looking out at nature. We're not a nature religion. All right, little word for the wise. The word should be central. Now, so the Episcopal idea of having hierarchy over where they're over the pastors and elders isn't biblical. In the New Testament, the overseers, the elders, and the shepherds are all the same people. We'll see that when we get to Acts 20. That's a little preview. Now let's go to verses 37 to 39. Barnabas wanted to take John called Mark along with him also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him, and sailed away to Cyprus. So I think this section has comforted an awful lot of church people over the centuries because we find out we're not the only ones. Everybody has disagreements when they're trying to decide things. It wasn't just a new invention. For as long as there's been decisions that have to get made, about who's going to do what and how it's going to happen. There's always going to be some disagreements. Even during the time of the apostles, there were some disagreements. And so we see it happening here. And uh, this doesn't imply that there's something inherently wrong with Mark. Because by all accounts, he's the one who ended up writing the book of Mark. And uh, this is part of God's providence, and God was going to use Mark, and later Paul did speak favorably of him later on in his epistles. And it's just the way God providentially worked so that things went as they needed to go. So, um, see, on the scene of history, we have intrigue and we have decisions and we have issues and we're trying to figure out what to do. And that's just the way it is. There's no hotline to heaven Where the voice of God says, says God, don't do this or don't do that when it comes to things that are within our liberty. We're at liberty to go on a mission with one person or maybe to go on a mission with another person. We just make decisions. But God will use it. If in our hearts we want the gospel to spread, it's not going to throw monkey wrench in there. I know a lot of people, I remember uh, back in the 70s when I was in the charismatic movement, we sort of had this idea of the hotline to heaven. And that if anything went wrong, it's because you weren't listening to God. Well, eventually, if you take that approach for long enough, you're going to be very depressed. Because you're quite sure you miss God constantly. Why? Because we live in a fallen world. So I remember thinking that way all the way into the 80s. It's hard to get out of my mind. I bought this old car, and I remember doing all this work. I didn't want to save money, so I got an old car, and I was rebuilding the transmission of the engine, and I was doing this and I was doing that. I was taking all my time. Finally, finally got the thing going down the road with the help of all kinds of people, and it was such a pain, I remember thinking, I must have missed God. If I was listening to God, he would have told me not to buy that car. But then I realized later, no, that's, that's not a biblical view. God allows us to make our decisions and learn from them, and we all have to make decisions, and we all, and there's no magic touch that happens because you're a Christian, and there's no hotline to heaven that guaranteed every time you buy a stock, it goes up. Every time you buy a car, it goes 300,000 miles and never breaks down. Every time you get a job, everybody there is nice and fun to work with and everything's pleasant. No, it doesn't like that. And so they have ordinary difficulties and decisions and troubles and it's hard raising kids. Okay? So you go because you have trouble, raising kids doesn't mean you didn't listen to God. There's battles to be fought and issues to be dealt with. And the issue isn't whether these things arise. It's whether we keep our hope and our joy and the fruit of the Spirit and keep going on, trusting God, and don't just get angry throw up our hands and walk away. That's the issue. That's what I've learned. Hang in there and ask God to show that fruit of the Spirit. That's been on my mind a lot lately because we need it so badly. The world is full of lawlessness and anger and hatred and violence and garbage. And there needs to be a people on the earth they're full of the joy of the Lord. You can tell who they are, even on TV. Some pretty cool people show up. Yes, brother.
1: I think that, uh, I hope everybody can hear. I, I think in a recent one of our talks that you mentioned how over the centuries of the churches, you know, that they'll get these little disagreements or we want to do it this way and the other people want to do that way. So then they just form another denomination. You know, one denomination and another one. And, you know, you think about how, how counterproductive that is to spreading the gospel, you know. Uh, I
0: think that you mentioned that. Yeah, well, see, what happens is there's some issue that becomes real important, and then they think they got a better answer, and sometimes they do, but then they try to institutionalize it and then write down every last thing. This way, not that way. This way, not that way. So you don't have any more prophecy and judgment of prophecy. And then they try to bind everybody in future generations to what they decided because they finally got it right. But it doesn't work because within two generations, you got liberals running the same group and owning all the buildings, and they'll swear allegiance to the thing and not preach one word of it.
1: And, and so what happens is people forget about the gospel that we repent and
0: believe in Jesus Christ. Right. They forget about that. The church, the real, yeah, they forget about the gospel, he said. The church unity is organic in that as we're filled with the spirit and we love the brethren and we preach the word of God, that just keeps going. And if that's... What perpetuates the church? We may be in different buildings, it may be different groups, they may spring up here, or spring up there, but the church will go forward. We're not trying to create something that's going to go on and on and on institutionally because it'll end up you, all your money is going to go to the liberals. Oh, yes. Because when I first day I saw Eric, who was at the front door of Bethel Seminary, and I first thing he remembers me saying to him was, the liberals keep getting the brick and mortar. <laughs> mm-hmm. A lot of conservatives built the thing and made sure we have a library and classrooms and everything we need, and then somebody else takes it over, and now the gospel isn't there anymore. So they made their decision. See, my point is this. <clears throat> This is just what happened. God used everybody. Mark ended up writing the Gospel of Mark. Paul ends up with Titus, and they have fruitful ministry. Evidently, Mark and Peter work together. They have fruitful ministry. God is just doing what he's doing. And sometimes they get stymied, and they end up going somewhere else, and God uses that. Um, so this um, John called Mark is, I think almost everybody agrees, wrote the Gospel of Mark. Now it says in Acts 13.13, 13, Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, but John left them and returned to Jerusalem. There's the issue. Now it doesn't say much about that in Acts 13.13, 13, that just John Mark, he said he left, but there it doesn't say that there was any contention. But here it comes up that there was a little more going on than what was mentioned earlier, and Paul wasn't too happy with it. Because here it says they deserted him. Yes. I totally
1: understand what you're saying about disagreements and, and being about, about Christ, God. But with Paul being an apostle, weren't they
0: called to submit to him? Uh, well, he... You notice, uh, well, if you, listen, uh, they had just had to have a conference in Jerusalem with various apostles to decide what, go, what went on. They had the teaching of Christ, and the apostles knew what that what that was. But it doesn't mean they had, didn't have to work things out and decide things. And the Holy Spirit inspired the writing of the Bible that we have. But Paul, one of the interesting pieces of literature in the New Testament is in 1 Corinthians where Paul said, not the Lord but I, remember he's giving his opinion. Him being apostle didn't mean everything he said was the exact word of God. When he was just talking with somebody. So he didn't have some revelation from God about what to do with Mark.
1: Because we don't have enough information, but could it have been a liberty, a Christian liberty
0: dispute? You know, he, have- he just didn't want to go with him. <laughs> How can I? Yes? I'm, I'm Ron? Reading,
1: as you look back at this stuff, hindsight is 20, 20. Here's the apostles. Did they really know exactly who the apostles were? We do from our time now, but you can imagine there was well, it, should we really be listening to him? Maybe we should be listening to
0: uh, okay, Ron, Well, let me let me uh, refer to that. I think they had a pretty good idea. Uh, Ron just said, "Did they really know who the apostles were?" I think they did at that point because there was so much ink written about um, who they were and what the requirements were. They had to have seen the resurrected Christ. We see that in Acts when they were trying to decide who to have replaced Judas they had to have been personally taught by Christ and then we see in 1 Corinthians 15 Paul's statement about him being the last as one born out of time so I think they had a pretty good idea uh, now there's a dispute about whether what was the name of the fellow chosen in Acts the Matthias yeah that's right Was was that a right thing? Well, Luke kind of leaves it ambiguous. And uh, we can talk about it, but at least they knew what the requirements were. And Paul later said there were people who claimed to be apostles who were not. So they identified that there were false apostles. And Paul called himself an apostle, so I think it was pretty clear who the apostles were. But it didn't mean that because Paul was an apostle, he couldn't have an opinion about whether he wanted Mark to go with him or not. Does that make sense? Peter went with him. Ended up, Mark, is associated with Peter. Yes, Beth.
1: Barnabas was the one who brought Paul to the, uh, into the church, into the, the realm of the disciples.
0: Yeah, his name is Son of Encouragement, yes.
1: Yeah, and I, I would think Paul had kind of an appreciation of Barnabas. Right. When there was this disagreement, and, and Mark was related to Barnabas, so I think Paul just didn't make a big issue of, I'm the apostle, you got to listen to me, because of his respect for Barnabas as being uh, uh, older than him and the family ties
0: with Mark. So they just split, rather than Paul making a, an authoritative... Yeah, I, he doesn't... When it comes to things that were within Christian liberty, Paul teaches a lot about Christian liberty, and he wasn't, because he was an apostle, therefore authorized to remove all Christian liberty. And our freedom to make decisions... At the moment, yes, uh, Eric. Actually,
1: I think uh, we just Barnabas. One reason that Paul and Barnabas, uh, you know, Paul, as we know, he was an apostle, but Barnabas was one of the first ones when Paul was saw the risen Christ and everything. Of course, uh, I'm just in Acts nine verse twenty-seven, uh, where Barnabas took hold of him, Paul, and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had been. Oh, it the Lord of the So Barnabas went way back with Paul. I and mean, Barnabas was uh, an ally of Paul, a close
0: friend of Paul. Right. right.
1: from the beginning, really. So I can see how they would have spoken almost as equals, I
0: guess. Well, you know, uh, we might think of hierarchy, because that's kind of how our minds work. But I don't know that's how they looked at things. You know, Ron, what you brought up, too. If you want to think about it, if you look back, when Paul was first converted, God appeared to Sananias. The that was in what was the Acts nine? Is that correct? Yeah, nine. Yeah, and spoke to him and told him to pray for Paul, even though he was afraid of him because he was trying to kill the Christians. And then he would show Paul what great things he was going to do. And so here was a man who shows up, is used by God, and is instrumental in helping along the process of Paul finding out his calling. But it doesn't make Ananias authoritative over Paul. It's just someone God used at that point in history and spoke to to bring Paul to the church, or in Barnabas, so you can read that in Acts nine. So God is using different people. If you look at look up in Acts nine, but who the apostles are is settled now. We know who they are and what their writings are. Um, Galatians two eleven through thirteen discusses the incident uh, here. <coughs> Uh, there was a, an incident between Paul and Barnabas, Galatians 2:11 through 13. Galatians 2:11 through 13. I'll read it. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, they began to withdraw, to hold himself a little fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined them in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their pa- pa- hypocrisy. So isn't that interesting that in another incident there was a debate going on between Barnabas and Paul? in Galatians Galatians Colossians 4.10 says Aristarchus my fellow prisoner sends you greetings and also Barnabas' cousin Mark about whom you received instructions if he comes to you welcome them So there was a reconciliation there between um, with Barnabas and good things said about him. So there were disputes, but it all got worked out. Anything else on that? I have here a picture. It says, Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. And so there's a picture here, and I'll read you the, what it says here. The landscape of Cyprus looks similar in ancient times to what it is pictured here. These are the Trodhaus Mountains of Cyprus, which were largely unpopulated in ancient times as well as today. Only One can only imagine the travel and hardships that the early preachers of the gospel endured. But Landscape photos like this one may help to remind us of what the text so quickly passes over. So here was the landscape. Now I hope you can see that. Uh, It's amazing all the traveling. Did you ever wonder about that? You just can't get on a bus and Very interesting, isn't it? Acts 15 40 and 41. But Paul chose Silas and left, be committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So he went off with Silas. Let me quote Dr. Schnabel. Paul chooses Silas as co-worker a leading Jewish Christian from Jerusalem who was a Roman citizen. The fact that the first we passage see on Acts 16.10 is connected with Paul's travel from Antioch via Syria, Cilicia, Glacia, Phrygia, and Mysia to Troas is most plausibly interpreted to indicate that Luke was among Paul's associates as an eyewitness during this period. And uh, Silas would have the support of the Jerusalem church and could testify to the outcome of the apostles' council. Since the letter of the apostles and elders was addressed not only to the church in Antioch, but also the churches in Syria and Cilicia, is that the letter had been entrusted to Silas alongside Judas Barsabbas. The presence of Silas among Paul's missionary associates signals the unity, says Schnabel, of the church consisted of Jewish believers and Gentile believers a unity that was confirmed and maintained by the apostles' council. So he thinks that Silas had an important role as affirming the unity of the agreement concerning the council that they'd had in Jerusalem. Does that make sense? Um, and so the strengthening was continuing to make sure that the saints were okay, the word of God is continued to be taught. see that that becomes very very important as we go through uh, the rest of Acts and certainly important in our day the world is in a continual state of lying to us we are being lied to continually the philosophy of the world is not the truth of the gospel and unless the word of God is purely taught and done so continually, we're going backwards. Do you see why that is? Preach the word, Paul said. I preached on that not long ago. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with a great patience and long-suffering because the time will come when they won't endure sound doctrine. We have to preach the word so we're not going backwards. The word of God has to be presented to us so our minds are renewed and we're encouraged into faith and we're encouraged in our battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, uh, I've got about 15 minutes. I want to introduce what I mentioned the other day And I wanted to get you thinking about this. And I welcome people to contemplate this and maybe come back uh, with what you might think. I, I, I'm looking at a verse now. It's, the reason I'm doing this is certainly pertinent to the whole world we're living in right now and all the chaos in our world. And there's a verse that I always was troubling to me, and I was never quite sure about it. And about two weeks ago, in the context of thinking about that series Eric and I did on our CIC podcast, that um, how God rules his universe and how he's using civil authorities and this whole divine council worldview. And so I want you to relook at this with me. We've got about 15 minutes. I want to introduce this Genesis 8, 21 and 22. And Yahweh smelled the soothing fragrance, and Yahweh said to himself, "Never again will I curse the ground for the sake of humankind now here's the in red what's baffled interpreters throughout church history or throughout history because the inclination of the heart of humankind is evil from his youth that 's in red up here, so let 's think about that nor will I ever again destroy all life as I've done, as long as the earth endures, seed and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will not cease. Now, (laughs) hold in here with me. I have never figured out why it says he won't curse the ground because humankind is evil from youth. Because that was given as the reason The ground was cursed. Have you ever thought about that? Well, maybe I've just spent too much time in libraries. (laughs) But I've wondered about that, and I notice when I look at the commentaries, they wonder about it. Let me, um, well, turn back in your Bible to Genesis 6-5. Let me me introduce this. Genesis 6-5. This was about the flood. Genesis 6.5 And Yahweh saw the, that the evil of humankind was great upon the earth and every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil. Notice the inclination of the thoughts of his heart was evil. Genesis six five, And that was what partly was evoked The flood that destroyed the earth. But now after the flood, in the context of Noah giving a sacrifice, God says he won't destroy the earth because man's heart is evil. So I'm sitting here thinking, really my whole Christian life, that doesn't make sense to me. If the inclination of the evil heart was why he cursed the earth, then how come laughter, the inclination of the evil heart is why he's not going to curse it? Now the liberals say, well, it's just because God's confused. We know that that's not true. Yes.
1: I'm just guessing. I'm just guessing here, okay? Okay. But in other words, um, if, I, if I read this, in other words, if I, if I understand the... Because of the inclination of the heart of humankind is evil from its use. In other words, that hasn't changed, is what he's saying. It's still evil, even though the flood flood occurred.
0: That that part is true. The flood didn't wipe out evil in the human heart.
1: And he's saying, I know that your heart is still
0: evil, but I'm not
1: going to flood the earth again.
0: That's true. That much is absolutely true. Now, let me give you my thought about it. Are you interested? All right. I was thinking in that light of of this whole series we did on the divine council. The reason for the flood in Genesis 6 is predicated upon the sins of the sons of God with the daughters of men. Is that not correct? And what also does it say in Genesis 6? The Nephilim... We're on the earth now the, this was very very bad ok so by taking Noah who was righteous and trusted in God and his family and, and had the ark built and he was a preacher of righteousness and saving him again another visitation of God where some are saved Noah and his family and the earth is judged By the way, all the ancient Mesopotamian religions had a story about the flood. They knew it really happened. So, what is different now? And the fact that humankind is evil is not different. But what is different is that according to what we learn. In Revelation, this what made me think about it because Eric and I were talking about this. Those sons of God who came into the daughters of men are locked up in the abyss, and they're not. That's not going to happen again. And the nephilim are wiped out. Although we have a few incidents later that the Bible doesn't explain, but eventually that's done away with for good. Does that make sense? So now what we have is God dealing with humankind, not sons of God coming to the daughters of men. It's just humankind now. It's a different issue. The ones who cross the boundary, according to Jude and 2 Peter 2, are locked in the abyss. So we got Genesis eight. In Genesis ten, then we have Babel. We have try to get my get it right here. We have Babel. We have the table of nations, the judgment of Babel, confusion of languages, table of nations. By Genesis twelve, we have God appearing to Abram and declaring a plan of salvation that in Abram's seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Okay. So now the issue isn't the sons of God interacting on the earth and per- perpetuating evil directly because they've been banished into the abyss, at least those ones. There's still a divine council, but it's kept up into the heavens. All right? Satan is the accuser of brethren, but up into heavens. Okay? And... What we have now from Noah to the final judgment is God dealing on the earth with humankind. And there's no point for the flood to wipe out humankind and then you have humankind and wipe out humankind then you have humankind. The flood wiped out more than humankind. Does that make sense? Am I the only one who ever thought of this? I don't know, it's just, Popped in my mind. So now, the way God is dealing with the evil of humankind, as we read through Genesis, is through the through national boundaries and civil rulers. Romans thirteen, national boundaries, civil rulers. And making a plan of salvation that'll come through a man, the last Adam, Jesus, the Son of God. So, now the verse makes sense to me. The evil in humankind still exists, but it's not going to be dealt with through a flood, it's going to be dealt with through a Savior and through human civil rulers. Now the reason I was thinking about this is part of it is the context. In Genesis 8.20, it says that Noah built an altar to Yahweh, and he took from all of the clean animals, from all of the clean birds, and offered burnt offerings on the altar... And then verse 21 we have up here, Yahweh smelled the soothing fragrance and Yahweh said to himself, never again will I curse the ground for the sake of humankind. The soothing fragrance is a phrase that's used often for offerings that were offered under the old covenant, later under Moses, that were received by God because they were offered in obedience and faith. The one offering that will be offered that is going to ultimately be pleasing to God is the offering of Jesus Christ, the sinless Lamb of God who gave himself for the sins of the world. And so sin will be dealt with through blood atonement, through offering, And evil, for those who won't listen to God, is going to be dealt with by government rulers who bear the sword and national boundaries. Table of nations, established of human rulers. Does that make sense? That's my reading of it. Because the way the sons of God were dealt with that it's created the evil that caused the flood, is they're locked in the abyss until they're let out in Revelation, and then right after that, the end, the, the judgment comes, and God establishes the millennial kingdom. But afterwards, I'll be reading verse uh, Genesis nine one, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, "Be fruitful." And multiply and fill the earth. Let me introduce this. Go home, think about it, write down questions, uh, and we can talk about this. Here's another reason I was thinking about this I'm watching on the TV riots, lawlessness, looters, right down where I worked for 25 years, post office gone. Where we used to get our mail. They destroyed it. And I thought, I remember all those poor people that lived in that neighborhood. They can't get any mail. We had a post office box. We used to complain they couldn't get the mail in the right box. Now they can't get any mail. How do you get your bills? How do you know what what anybody's trying to communicate to you? How do you stay in contact? It's gone. The bank where we used to make our deposits, destroyed. The hardware store where we used to buy things to fix the church building, looted. 25 years I was down here. That's what's, and I was thinking about this, okay? So what's going on? Well, this is lawlessness. The spirit of lawlessness is already at work. Sin is lawlessness, The civil government, when it's functioning, is restraining lawlessness. So I'm starting to think, okay, how do we put this in the bigger scheme of Bible prophecy? Does this mean the rapture is going to happen right now? I don't think so. We can't know that. I was actually comforted when I was looking at this. Even though evil inclination is in the heart of man, right after the flood his evil from his youth. God's not going to destroy the earth. He established civil government, national boundaries, and a savior. Genesis 9, 10, 11, 12. After Babel, the destruction of Babel. We're not going to have one world government until God lets him do it during the tribulation. Table of Nations, civil government. A savior, Genesis 12, Abram. Through thy seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's how he's dealing with it. What do we have right now? National boundaries, civil government, and a savior. Right now, the civil government's not doing so good. But it's better than the sons of God it's better than the Antichrist we get the spirit of Antichrist but we don't have Antichrist so as from Pentecost till the rapture is the church age so as long as the gospel is being preached and people are being saved out of those wicked world and added to the kingdom of God God's purpose is still going forward and maybe all of this evil caused some people to flee to Christ. I've seen it happen before. Saw so it happened in the 70s. Jesus people movement, with all its flaws, there were an awful lot of people that came to Christ. I've seen people flee. I see some people even come on TV, like even Franklin Graham, telling people they need Christ in the midst of all this. Another lady, what's her name, avita King, she's got the love of Christ in her heart, talks about Christ, really Christ. There's going to be that. So we're still in the same age. This doesn't mean the world's coming to an end. When the rapture happens, it'll be, one will be in the field, one taking the other left what it says in the Bible. So that's why I was thinking about this. I might have some more material about this, but I wanted to put this out there for you. I don't know how comforting it is. It's, it's hard to be comforted right now when it's so wicked all around us. They're calling good evil and evil good and destroying and burning and looting and making life very, very difficult. But God is committed to civil life going on so that the gospel can continue to be spread and people can be saved. And so far, we can still preach the gospel. And whether they tell us, if they ever say we can't, we're going to do it anyhow. Nothing is going to stop us from preaching Christ, not even death, the threat of death. Yes, Brother Eric, we've got to be done.
1: Uh, Steve, well, four of us have went down to Uptown on Friday. And, you know, we've been down there before and there's a lot of, I feel, I, I don't want to sound mystical because I'm not. But usually there's a lot of resistance down there, you know, the people are not the most godly. But you can you can walk up to these people now and you can say, you know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And they won't laugh at you. And, and there's a little bit more receptiveness. Right
0: there, so. I've seen it happen before remember the 68 riots and the rebellion and the hippies but then there was the Jesus people movement and there were a lot of people that came to Christ back in the 70's I was one who came to Christ in the 70's so you never know but we do, we're do we still in the same era of history let's close with prayer thank you Lord for the fellowship of the saints for the word of God for the chance to be here together with one another. Pray for the civil leaders that they would indeed restrain evil as they've been assigned that duty by you, according to Romans 13. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.